Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. I'm Pastor Michael Branch. So as we begin, we pray, Lord, sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth. Hey, what's up, everyone? Uh, welcome this morning to our uh, very um, odd uh, Facebook Live gathering online. I hope you guys are all sitting around and you're comfortable and you're ready to study this morning. Uh, we won't be having any music this morning, but uh, but we will um, be doing a study um, of something that I doubt that you've really ever heard covered. Um, we're going to start with a scripture in Revelation, and all my notes are going to be on the screen today. So you can just read right along. You get to see my misspellings and, and, and all of that. And let me just warn you, it's, it's going to be a little bit cerebral. You're, you may feel like you're in a, in a, a class in a seminary or something like that to some degree. Uh, but you can only feel that so much because it's me and I'm no seminary professor. Um, but I wanted to cover early church fathers and... Uh, their views on the um, on on end time prophecy on eschatology, and so we've covered. I really wanted to lay a foundation um, and cover a lot of the things that uh, that we have been covering, like lining things up so that you would have an understanding of where we are in the grand scheme of things, and you would understand hopefully um, eschatology or end times prophecy a little more clearly. Um, just by seeing how the New Testament unfolds it, and also the first three, four, five centuries of the early church, what did they believe? Um, first of all, though, I want to start out with a little community stuff. First, first of all, um, do we have any prayer requests? And I'm not live, but but you guys will excuse me. I'm going to open my phone up. I'm going to go to the feed so I can see comments. Do we have anybody out there right now with prayer requests that we can uh, that we can pray for you this morning. Let me get to the page. So you can just type it right there in the, in the, uh, oh, I got to turn my audio down. Here we go. Okay. Uh, hey, y'all. Good to see you this morning. Glad you're with us. Um, anybody have any prayer requests that you want to, you need prayer for, you know, if somebody needs prayer. I know that uh, my dad and, uh, and his wife, Kathy, they are um, they are actually dealing with COVID. They're doing well. Um, there are some other folks that I know that have had it this last week, and that's one of the reasons that uh, we wanted to, to be at home today is because we were uh, it exposed this last week, and we wanted to make sure out, out of an abundance of caution uh, not to put anybody at risk at church. Uh, so we just thought we would go this route. So if you guys have any comments, questions, prayer requests, anything like that, uh, please feel free to comment you know. on here. Okay, cool. Krista said she would let me know. She's sitting over there on the corner, and uh, you won't get to see her cute little face today um, because she's hiding over there in the corner. But um, but she's going to try to keep me apprised of everything going on in the comment Vicky section. Do what? Vicky has one. Vicky? They're on Lacey. Uh, where did it go? Eight months pregnant and the baby is breached and the baby boy to turn. Okay, so um, let's pray for that 
um, that baby to get its act together and turn around there in the womb. So, Sherry, so healing prayers for Paul, please. Absolutely, Sherry. We will be praying for Paul and his health. Uh, pray for his uh, his healing, his divine healing. Uh, something only the Lord can do. Amen. So, uh, Paul, you are in our prayers, and we will certainly lift you up. Anybody else? Aaron's sister fell yesterday. She's having surgery soon. Okay. Aaron's sister fell, having surgery. Did she, uh, details, did she break something or fracture something, or what's the surgery about? No answer yet? Okay. Aaron, you have to stay off of uh, the television and watching chief stuff while we're studying, okay? I want your undivided attention. Uh, we'll be rooting for them too later, just for your sake, because otherwise I don't really care. Um, okay, Any? Uh, thank you guys for joining, and uh, let's see what we have here. I want to start out in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, and verse uh, verses 4 through 6. Um, and here is what it says, okay? Let's let's start out with prayer before we even, even read the scripture. Lord, we thank you so much for the many blessings that you have given us in our life. Um, Lord, they are truly countless, and we are just oblivious to the many ways that you've blessed us and protected us. And and uh, and so, Lord, we take the time this morning to, to truly give you the thanks and honor that you deserve for all of those things. We, we really are grateful and thankful for you and your presence in our lives, for the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, Lord. And today, Lord, we lift those up, uh, all of these prayer requests, Lord, for the, the baby to turn, for Paul's health, for Aaron's sister, Lord, um, the, all the many things that, that uh, are the concerns on the hearts of these folks that we love and their family and their friends, those that they love, Lord, we lift them up to you today and ask for your, your divine healing, your protection, your touch, uh, your presence uh, around them and in them, Lord, during this time. And Lord, just uh, for our country, for our families, for everything going on, Lord, um, we know that you are sovereign, that you're in control of all things. And, and so we submit to you, Lord Jesus, and we ask that you would enlighten us to where the enemy is at work so that we can, uh, Father, we can, we can take authority over that, Lord, because we know you have the victory, you have the authority over that. And so, and so Father, we do uh, ask that you would show us where we need to intervene when it is actually the enemy uh, doing his work that we can come against that. So Lord, give us wisdom in all of that. Uh, but but Lord, we honor you and we trust you and we give you all the glory this morning. It's in your precious name we pray, the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. So um, we've been talking about um, end time prophecy and and there's a lot of confusion surrounding end-time prophecy. And a lot of that began, as I said before, because uh, the early church, right around the 5th century, um, began to um, look at their circumstances surrounding them. And we're going to cover that today. I'm going to point that out to you. They began to look at their circumstances, and they, and they thought that they were seeing the fulfillment of things in their lifetime. And that's always dangerous territory because, number one, you're saying, thus saith the Lord. You're saying that is the fulfillment, that this is it, um, without really having 
full evidence that it actually is the fulfillment. And and I just think that's a dangerous place to be. If anything, we can question it and say, well, it could have been, uh, but it's probably not, or or it it may be. You know what I mean? Like we shouldn't we shouldn't come down really hardcore and solid on something saying it was a fulfillment unless we know for a fact that it was a fulfillment. And and uh, in the past, prophecy concerning the Lord and biblical prophecy has a one hundred percent accuracy rating okay so there's never any question when it comes to god fulfilling prophecy it's it's always fulfilled to a t always fulfilled to perfection and that's how we can know it and that's why i believe personally it's dangerous to say something has been fulfilled when in fact you don't there's still some questions surrounding it so we're going to get into that but today what i want to do is talk about early church fathers and what they believed and specifically some of these guys that that were taught by uh john the beloved the the writer of the book of revelation what did they believe what did we already covered what John believed and what and last week if you didn't watch last week go back and watch that um, we laid out a lot of things honestly y'all I'm sorry it's just a lot of content and sometimes it's difficult to understand so you may have to go back and watch it two or three times but I would encourage that I would really encourage you to try to get an understanding because the more understanding you have about what's coming. Uh, then you'll be able to prepare yourself and your family spiritually for what lies ahead, no matter what. Whether things get great, uh, awesome and we see another you know, 100 years of peace and prosperity in the United States of America, or if we're right on the doorstep of, of uh, seeing uh, the Lord take the church back, which I, I believe we're, we are, um, seeing the rap, we're going to see the soon rapture of the church and we're going to see the, the end times unfolding. I believe we're seeing the chess pieces uh, set up on the board and the and that game is about to ensue okay so we're going to start in revelation chapter 20 verses 4 through 6 starting in verse 4 then i saw thrones and they sat up on them and judgment was given to them and i saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony and jesus uh, because of the testimony of jesus and because of the word of god and those who had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hands. So this is post-tribulation. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So this is saying specifically, um, it's using the terminology of 1,000 years that we saw repeated when Jesus mentioned the regeneration, when Peter and and uh, Paul mentioned the uh the, the, the time of restoration or the times of refreshing, okay? This is referencing that, okay? So again, is this to be understood literally or allegorically? You do not ditch your proper hermeneutic or interpretational approach to Scripture for the book of Revelation either. You bring your hermeneutic and your worldview when you attempt to understand Revelation. Good Christians are all trying to figure out how to interpret this text and this particular text is is the um is the passage that causes a lot of issue what does that thousand year reign actually mean okay but to clarify why don't we consider what the apostle john's own disciples believed okay so here's some things that we can keep in mind in my study of all of these early uh, church fathers okay now now understand first of all these are early church fathers these were not divinely inspired writers of scripture like john was 
but these guys were guys who were the the disciples of John. So it is very clearly understood and very likely and logical, honestly, that the Apostle John would share what he believed about eschatology with those closest around him. And so that's what I'm going to try to show you today. And I'm also going to show you how some of the early church fathers, as time went on, pushed back against that literal view of interpretation. So here is what it says. If one of the early church fathers does one of the following things, it tips us off that they held a premillennial view. Number one, they claim a personal connection to the Apostle John or his disciples. Number two, they teach that a literal 1,000-year reign is coming in the future. Number three, they approach the Old Testament or New Testament prophecy literally, so it's not spiritual and it's not allegorical. Number four, they appeal to a future literal fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. So all of the Old Testament prophecies, they're saying that no, it's not fulfilled in the church. It's not spiritual. It's not allegorical. We believe that it is going to be fulfilled in the future uh, literally. Number five, they believe that the kingdom of heaven is yet to come in its fullness. So uh, we, because the body of Christ is grafted in the vine and we uh, we are afforded many of the benefits of the promises that God made to Abraham in the spiritual, in the first fruits of the Spirit that was poured out on us. Uh, that doesn't mean that we are Israel or that the church replaced Israel and that God is done with Israel. Okay, again, you can go back to Romans chapter 11 and read that, and Paul is very clear about that. So if these things apply, then it's highly probable that the early church father is premillennial, meaning that. Uh, the rapture is going to take place before the millennium and that they approach the Old Testament prophecy literally. So here's the kicker. We see this pattern in almost all 2nd century and 3rd century church fathers from whom we have significant eschatological writings. Okay, So this is the pattern and belief system from almost every single 2nd uh, century and 3rd century church father from whom we have writings about end times prophecy, and especially from those connected to John, who was the writer of Revelation. So I'm hoping I'm hoping this is not a total geek thing where I'm geeking out about something, and you guys are like, what in the world is he talking about? But the bottom line is this. John, who wrote the book of Revelation, had followers, had disciples around him, and they believed in the literal 1,000-year reign and fulfillment of the kingdom of heaven on this earth involving specifically Israel, okay? So John lived in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and he had a few disciples, and we're going to look at some of those disciples. Now, we've looked at some of them already. Uh, we mentioned Justin Martyr when we did that comparison between uh, Justin Martyr and, I believe it was Matthew Henry, and their uh, commentaries. Okay, Justin Martyr lived from 100 to 165 AD. He was a second generation disciple, okay? So just like very, very close. He was acquainted with Polycarp, who was John's disciple. And it's likely he would have known Papias during his time in Ephesus, okay, when they served in the ministry there, uh, likely together for some period of time. Then there is Irenaeus, and he was uh, around in 140 to 202 AD. Um, he, too, was a second-generation disciple. He was an actual disciple of Polycarp, 
who again was John's disciple. So you had John, then you had Polycarp, and then you had uh, Irenaeus, okay? And these guys were, again, were not direct disciples uh, of John, but they were the disciples of the disciples of John. And this, uh, the, the things that John spoke about and talked about were talked about to them, and they carried on these, um, these doctrines, okay? They all lived in Asia Minor. All of them grew up under what tradition says was the leadership or bishopric of John, meaning he was the pastor or the, the, the leader over these gentlemen. They were all directly connected to John through Polycarp. So, so they're referred to, this group of men, uh, early church fathers are referred to as the school of John. All of them were pre-millennial, okay? So let's look at Polycarp, 69 uh, to 155 A.D., both Irenaeus and Tertullian record that Polycarp had been a disciple of the Apostle John. So this is history. This is not somebody, you know, just pulling it out of thin air. This is, this is written in history, and I've got all the books on my bookshelf over there. I looked through all of them and found these, uh, many of these quotes that we're going to talk about today and what they believe. Uh, one of the reasons I'm bringing this up is because the the major charge against uh, dispensationalism, which are the different ages, and premillennialism, uh, the major charge is that that uh, it someone came up with it just a few hundred years ago. That it's a very new belief, and it hadn't even been around. And so, why in the world are we adopting this new belief that nobody's ever believed in the church before? My job today is to show you that that is absolutely not the case. That all the way back until not just John the Apostle, but his own personal disciples and then their disciples, that they all believe the same thing that, that we believe today and have been teaching recently. Okay? Uh, in Illustrious Men, okay, these are all historical books. And so that's when I say illustrious men. Uh, Jerome writes that Polycarp was a disciple of John and that, he, and that John had ordained him as a presbyter or pastor at the church of Smyrna. Okay, Polycarp is regarded as one of three chief apostolic fathers along with Clement of Rome and Ignatius of Antioch. And these three were direct disciples of his. One degree from the writer of Revelation. That's important to understand. Right from the horse's mouth, okay? Uh, if it's okay to call John a horse. All right. In the epistle to the Philippians, um, there were two questions asked, okay? But who of us are ignorant of the judgment of the Lord? Do we not know that the saints shall judge the world as Paul teaches? So this was a, um, this was a quote of Polycarp, okay? And um, and he's saying, look, this is something that we all believe. Who who of us are ignorant of this, of the judgment of the Lord and the fact that the saints are going to judge the world, that someday we are com coming back to rule and reign with Christ just as Paul teaches. Okay, now let's look at Papias or Papias or whatever you want to call him. All right. Um, in 60 through 130 AD, he was a first and second generation disciple of Irenaeus. Uh, or Irenaeus said, I'm sorry, he's, Irenaeus said that he was a hearer of John, meaning he heard from the horse's mouth, and a companion of Polycarp, who was, again, a one degree away from John. And we believe many of his writings were destroyed when the library at Alexandria burned, okay? However, uh, Eusebius, 
who was around at that time as well, someone that we would call a liberal historian, in the 4th century, he wrote about Papias' writings because he read them before they were destroyed. Okay, so you understand what's happening here. Papias had a whole bunch of writings. Many of them had to do with end-time prophecy, one specifically. And these writings were destroyed, but before they were destroyed, uh, Eusebius had an opportunity to read them. And here's a quote from uh, his view of the writings of Papias, okay? He says, quote, Papias gives also other accounts which he says came to him through unwritten tradition, okay? So more than likely through the Apostle John and Polycarp. Certain strange parables and teachings of the Savior, and some are more mythical things. To these belong his statement that there will be a period of some thousand years after the resurrection of the dead, and that the kingdom of Christ will be set up in material form on this very earth. Now, he's kind of being uh, sarcastic. He's kind of, uh, you know, as they say, uh, throwing shade, okay? Um, does, does Eusebius seem to like this? Absolutely not. He calls them strange parables, okay? He opposed premillennialism. Even back then, this debate was still alive and well. Uh, however, again, it wasn't until later that this, that this debate struck up but early on, all the disciples of John, one degree, two degrees away from the Apostle John, who wrote Revelation, they believed in premillennialism, okay? Eusebius also argued that the book of Revelation itself was a fraud. So in my estimation, when he is arguing that one of the books of the Bible is a fraud, he himself is a fraud, and we shouldn't listen to anything he has to say. From the book uh, Church History man, seven, under the heading, The Apocalypse of John. Is that a seven? All right, good. I, for some reason, you know how there are gaps in your learning, like in school? Uh, I never learned Roman numerals, so um, that's something that I never picked up. It's pretty odd. It's probably because I moved 27,000 times from school to school, and I just missed that a few weeks of education. So here's, here's a quote from the book, Church History 7, under the heading, The Apocalypse of John, okay? And again, this is um, Eusebius and what he was saying. And I want to look primarily uh, at this, this green text here. For they say that it is not the work of John, nor is it a revelation, because it is covered thickly and densely by a veil of obscurity. So he's attacking the... Um, Actual, actually, the book of Revelation as not even being um, a um, a divinely inspired book, uh, right? That it shouldn't even be part of the canon. Uh, Papias lived very close to contemporaneously, that's just a very fancy word for at the same time, with the apostles, and he clearly uh, was taught by somebody and he clearly believed in the pre-millennial reign, okay, in, in what we teach. Now, what about Justin Martyr? In a debate with a man named Trifo in, in chapter 80, okay, um, this was, they wrote letters back and forth back then, okay? And so he's speaking through uh, correspondence, through letters, with a man named Trifo. And, and um, anyway, so... Trifo is sending a letter to Justin Martyr, and he says, But tell me, Justin, do you really admit that this place, Jerusalem, shall be rebuilt? 
And do you expect your people to be gathered together and made joyful with Christ and the patriarchs and the prophets, both the men of our nation, the Jews, and other proselytes who joined them before your Christ came? Or have you given way and admitted this in order to have the appearance of worsting us in the controversies? So in other words, are you really premillennial? Do you really believe this? Or are you just messing with us? Are you just messing with me? Are you trying to pull the wool over my eyes? Are you just trying to best me in our debate here? And here's how Justin Martyr responds, okay? Very, very interesting historical stuff here, okay? He says, I am not so miserable a fellow, Trifo, as to say one thing and think another. I admitted to you formerly that I and many others are of this opinion and believe that such will take place. Okay, now here's an important point that he makes. As you assuredly are aware, but on the other hand, I signified to you that many who belong to the pure and pious faith are true Christians that they think otherwise. So he's saying, I realize that there are a lot of believers right now that disagree with us. All right. More, and he's saying, and they're true and pious believers. Okay. Moreover, I pointed out to you that some who are called Christians but are godless, impious heretics teach doctrines that are in every way blasphemous, uh, atheistical, and foolish. But that, but that you may know that I do not say this before you alone. Uh, basically, I'm not just saying this in secret in my letters to you. I'm going to draw up a statement so far as I can of all the arguments which have passed between us in which I shall record myself as admitting the very same things which I admit to you. For I choose to follow not men or men's doctrines, but God and the doctrines delivered by him. For if you have fallen in with some who are called Christians, now listen to this. For if you have fallen in with some who are called Christians, but who do not admit this truth and venture to blaspheme the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So he's bringing Israel into it, and he's saying, if somebody believes this, they say there is no resurrection of the dead, and that their souls when they die are taken to heaven. Do not imagine that they are Christians, even as one, if he would rightly consider it, would not admit that the Sadducees or similar sects, and then he lists several different uh, sects in their modern day, okay? He says, do not hear me impatiently when I tell you what I think. It's, it's funny, it's like a text message when you, when you can read a text message incorrectly or you don't know what the look on their face is when they're writing it, so you might suppose they're angry. And he, he's <laughs> comforting him saying, do not hear me impatiently when I tell you what I think. These are only Jews and children of Abraham worshiping God with their lips, as God himself declared, but their hearts were far from him. So he's saying there's a difference between national Israel and believing Israel, okay? And then he's saying that if anybody says or denies that there is one day going to be a, body, a bodily resurrection called glorification, that you can't deny the resurrection, the body bodily resurrection and still be a believer okay now understand that he's not he is not a divinely inspired writer of scripture so this is his opinion this does not make it absolute truth but the point i'm trying to show you is the evidence suggests that back then the earliest church fathers believed uh the very things that i've been teaching you over the last several weeks okay but look what it says here in red okay but I and others who are right-minded Christians on all points are assured that there will be a resurrection of the dead 
and a thousand years in Jerusalem, which will then be built, adorned, and enlarged, as the prophets Ezekiel and Isaiah and others declare. So it's pretty clear he's basically saying uh, there are plenty of us during this time who believe in the physical resurrection followed by the millennial reign of Christ in which Christ will reign from Jerusalem and Israel will have that national prominence as the prophets had promised, okay? I hope you guys are with me. If you're still with me, give me a thumbs up in the uh, in the comment section. Everybody still awake and good? All right, I'm going to take an opportunity to take a drink. All right, <clears throat> so Irenaeus, in a book called Against Heresies, here's a quote from him. I told you guys this was going to be pretty cerebral, so I hope you're okay. Did we get any comments there? Just getting lots of thumbs up. Okay, good deal, y'all. Thank you very much. I, I worry sometimes that it's just, uh, I'm not calling you stupid by any means, but uh, but I just don't want to blow your faces off with, with too much, okay? Uh, but the great thing about this is it's recorded, and you can go back and watch it again if you need to. Aaron um, spelled out thumbs up. <laughs> nice. You can always count on Aaron to, to bring the humor and to be the class clown. That's why I give him such a hard time. Uh, all right, quote, The predicted blessing, therefore, belongs unquestionably to the times of the kingdom. All right? And this is all that... that Jesus preached and John the Baptist preached and it was all about the kingdom of heaven. It was all about the gospel of the kingdom to Israel and that this was a promise that the that the prophets had had talked about. And so uh, right here, so again, we're talking about Irenaeus and he's saying that the predicted or prophesied blessing belongs unquestionably to the times of the kingdom when the righteous shall bear rule upon the their rising from the dead when also the creation, having been renovated and set free, Romans chapter 8, okay, shall fructify, lovely word, I'm going to have to start using the word fructify more often, um, shall be fruitful with an abundance of all kinds of food from the dew of heaven and from the fertility of the earth, okay? Now this is important because remember, what is the regeneration about? What is the times of refreshing about? What is the thousand-year reign about? It is a reflection of the Garden of Eden, okay? And that's what he's saying here. And he say, as the elders who saw John, the disciple of the Lord, related that they had heard from him how the Lord used to teach in regard to these times. Okay, now this is hugely important to understand. He's talking about the fact that the blessing is going to, to unquestionably be during the times of the kingdom for Israel. When the righteous, when the believers rule and reign on the earth with Christ, when creation itself will be set free, it will see the times of refreshing, of regeneration, of rejuvenation. It will be renovated and set free. It will be fruitful with the abundance of all kinds of food. And that's what the feeding of the 5,000 was about. There were 12 basketfuls left over, signifying the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, um, And then he's saying, uh, okay, so from the dew of heaven, from the fertility of the earth. And then he makes this point. Um, I know I'm being repetitious here. I just want to drive this home. The elders who saw John, he's making the point that these were the guys 
who were rubbing elbows with the man who wrote the book of Revelation, okay? And what he told them and what they believed and what Christ used to talk about, okay? So these, so this is extra biblical, so it's not to be held in account with Scripture. But again, I believe Scripture tells us plenty. Just go back and watch last week's message, and here's what he says, okay? So, they had heard from him how the Lord used to teach in regard to this time of refreshing and say, The days will come in which vines shall grow, each having 10,000 branches, and in each branch 10,000 twigs, and in each true twig 10,000 shoots, and in each one of these shoots 10,000 clusters, and on every one of the clusters 10,000 grapes, and every grape when pressed will give five and twenty metrites, metrite, met, met, whatever, uh, five and twenty measurements of wine. And when any one of the saints shall lay hold of a cluster, another cluster shall cry out, I'm a better cluster, take me, bless the Lord through me. In like manner, the Lord declared that all animals feeding only on the productions of the earth, meaning it's going to return back to the way it was in Eden, when the Bible tells us that animals themselves, there was no predator and prey, but the animals ate fruit, nuts, seeds, and all of those uh, vegetation-type things that the earth produced for them. Okay, so animals will return to that. And, uh, and then in those days, the earth will become peaceful and harmonious with the animals among each other and be in perfect subjection to man. So again, they believed and taught that the Apostle John was telling his disciples that Jesus used to teach them about these things and that the things he told them about was that the earth during the time of the of the regeneration was going to return back to the way it was in the Garden of Eden. That is so cool. Okay, if you guys like that, uh, give me a thumbs up there. Let me let me know that you're still you're still with me. Okay, and these things uh, bear witness to in writing by Papias, the hearer of John and the companion of Polycarp. So he makes it he makes a statement and he makes it a point to connect uh, Papias to the apostle John and Polycarp, who was a one-degree disciple of John himself. And he says in addition, now these things are credible to believers. Don't let anybody tell you that because you believe in the, the different ages, that you believe in the rapture, that you believe in uh, the millennial reign of Christ being a literal thing, don't let anybody tell you that you're wacko and that the, that's not in the Bible. It is in the Bible, and it was also taught and believed by the early church follower, uh, followers, fa fathers. Uh, again, against heresies, here's another quote. But when this Antichrist shall have devastated all things in this world, he will reign for three years and six months and sit in the temple at Jerusalem. And then the Lord will come from heaven in the clouds and the glory of the Father, sending this man and those who follow him into the lake of fire. Now listen to what he says after this. But bringing in for the righteous the times of the kingdom. So again, ruling and reigning with Christ for this thousand-year reign referred to as the kingdom. That is, the rest, the hallowed seventh day. Okay? That, so so there's this, this 
um, teaching that the earth has these um, um, millennia, millenniums, seven days. A day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. And I got to tell you, we are nearing the end of what would be the sixth millennium if you are to take scripture literally and believe that the earth was created in seven literal days, then we are in the thousand years being as a day, we are nearing the end of the sixth day, and the seventh day is considered to be the day of rest, which is uh, the millennium in that whole uh, idea and what they taught. And he's, he's talking about that here. And he says, restoring Abraham the promised inheritance in which the kingdom the Lord declared that many coming from the east and west should sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay, so again, this is the prophecy that during the millennium, they're still going to be spreading the gospel of the kingdom. That Israel will be the prominent place where Christ himself will reign, but there will be Gentiles all around the earth that will need to hear the gospel of the kingdom, and God will use Israel... Uh, and he will use the descendants of Abraham at that time to go into all the earth. And that prophecy says they're going to grab them by the arm and say, take us to your city. You're a Jew. Well, take us to your home city where Christ dwells, where the Lord lives. We want to see him. And that's uh, all about that prophecy. All right. Against Heresies 535. For all these and other words were unquestionably spoken in reference to the resurrection of the just, which takes place after the coming of the Antichrist. So it's giving us a timeline, guys. These early church fathers believed the same exact things. And the destruction of all nations under the Antichrist rule, in the times of which the resurrection of the righteous shall reign in the earth, waxing stronger by the sight of the Lord. Remember last week what um, Peter preached? He said that Christ is going to sit at the right hand of the Father until Israel repents, and then he will bring the times of refreshing because of the presence of the Lord. And I believe that's what is being quoted here, waxing stronger by the sight of the Lord. Jesus is going to be here in bodily form, reigning on the earth. And listen to what he says next, and nothing is capable of being allegorized, but all things are steadfast and true. Land substantial, having been made by God for righteous men's enjoyment. Okay, so I think you guys are starting to pick up here uh, what I'm trying to lay down for you. Okay, Tertullian, uh, late second century in the book against Marcion, uh, of the heavenly kingdom, this is the process. After its thousand years are over, within each period is completed the resurrection of the saints who rise sooner or later according to their deserts, and that just means rewards, okay? Um, there will ensue the destruction of the world and the conflag conflagration of all things at the judgment. So he's saying that there's a period of time in which the dead are raised. Um, after the thousand years are over, he raises all the dead um, for the, again, that white throne judgment, and, and believers are not part of that. Okay, and that's where he separates the sheep from the goats. That's where he separates the wheat from the tares. And he and then all things are destroyed and behold, he makes all things new. That is the white throne judgment. And uh, and then, of course, the new heaven and the new earth uh, add to the list. Uh, I'm going to struggle with some of these names. I can't believe they named their kids this. But um, anyway, I wonder what if they had middle names. 
Add to the list Hippolytus, Africanus, Lactantius, Nepos, Commodianus, Commodianus, Methodism. All of these, all of these premillennialists lived before 325. Um, okay, and and here are a few other quotes that I want to cover. Scipion uh, and Ephraim also wrote about the pre-trib rapture. This is 200 A.D. to 258 A.D. in the treatises of Cyprian. We who see that terrible things have begun and know that still more terrible things are imminent may regard it as the greatest advantage to depart from it as quickly as possible. Do not give God. Uh, do you not give God thanks? Do you not congratulate yourself that by an early departure you are taken away and delivered from the shipwrecks and disasters that are imminent? Let us greet the day which assigns each of us to his own home, which snatches us hence and sets us free from the snares of the world and restores us to paradise and the kingdom. Okay, so again, this is clearly teaching of the rapture in the second century. All right, so that's really important. Guys, um, people argue constantly that, that the rapture is nowhere in the Bible and nobody believed the rapture up until, you know, 150 to 200 years ago. That's simply not the case. Ephraim the Syrian, 306 uh, to 373 AD, in the sermon entitled, On the Last Times, the Antichrist and the End of the World. That's putting it out there. For all the saints and elect of God are gathered prior to the tribulation that is to come and are taken to the Lord, lest they see the confusion that is to overwhelm the world because of our sins, okay? So it's kind of, I think, referencing that um, that uh, scripture that says that the days are cut, cut short because uh, even the elect uh, would not make it if, if they weren't cut short during that time. He's saying, they're congratulating themselves, saying, look, we're not going to be a part of this tribulation. All right, that's what they believed way back then in the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd centuries, okay? Uh, thus, the early church fathers, Barnabas, and I'm, I wrote down here, you know, the, uh, the times in which they lived. Uh, Barnabas, Papias, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Hippolytus, Cyprian, Lactantius, uh, wrote on the imminent return of Jesus Christ for the church which is a central argument for the pre-tribulation rapture view. So uh, in the early years, first through second centuries, the closer one was to the Jewish apostles, and especially John, who wrote the book of Revelation, right? The last revelation of Jesus Christ, the more likely they were to be a believe in the rapture and be a premillennialist. When the great um, persecution broke upon the church, in 303, there was a speculation that the dreaded tribulation may have arrived, okay? So, here's, this is important because this is where we begin to see things changing. Early in the uh, the early church, we see the fathers clearly believed there was some debate and maybe some question as to how it all unfolded. But those who were taught by Jesus, those who were taught by the Apostle John, who wrote Revelation, clearly had an understanding of the rapture and the uh, millennial, the literal millennial reign of Christ. All right? And so when the persecution came and the church, they were hiding in catacombs to worship and uh, they were being thrown to the lions and all of that sort of thing, 
they believed at that time, based on their surroundings, that the tribulation was here. All right? And with the Emperor Diocletian as the first beast of Revelation, and his, or his Caesar Galerius as the second beast. So they looked at their time period and said, oh, this is the fulfillment. That was it. This, he's the Antichrist and he's the beast. Okay, And that's, that's what they believed at that time. That was in error. Um, then what we see here is what we would call eschatological drift, meaning drifting away from that first, second, and third century truth that seemed to be this understanding. Constantine won the empire in battle in 312 and immediately called a halt to the persecution of Christians. He promised to restore the church's property and offered to act as its sponsor and patron. And the surviving Christians were ecstatic. So imagine this. They went from being thrown to the lions and hiding in catacombs to all of a sudden the emperor now is like, I'm going to repay everything that was destroyed in the church. We're going to set up a church uh, anew. And... Um, and here's how they received it. I mean, this is um, the angel of the mighty council, the great captain and leader of the armies of God. I mean, that's what they called Constantine, okay? It kind of sounds familiar, like how we often say, well, this guy's, this this politician, he's from God. Be very careful about that, folks, okay? Uh, they're calling him the great captain and, captain and leader of the armies of God, suddenly appeared, wrote Eusebius of Caesarea, referring to Constantine. And with the Edict of Milan in AD 313, by which Constantine reversed the Roman Empire's policy of hostility toward Christianity, and they afforded it full legal recognition and even favor. I realize that that says accorded, but I think afforded works better. Uh, historian Paul Johnson, all right, he studied this greatly, and this is a quote from one of the books that I have. Um, he calls the issuance of this edict one of the decisive events in world history because it changed everything, and it changed the church big time. Okay, And he says, with it, no longer was the blood of martyrs the seed of the church. Rather, Christianity would be, in many ways, a mirror image of the empire of Rome itself. So it was, quote, it was Catholic, universal, ecumenical, which is like all, all faiths, like the Roman Empire would conquer a people, and if they had a certain belief, that's okay, you can still believe that, but now you're part of this universal church, okay? It was orderly, interna international, multiracial, and increasingly legalistic because they used it for means of uh, raising money, right? Um, for like indulgences and all of those types of things. It was a huge force for stability, but hence Christianity after 313 would become more worldly rather than otherworldly. And that has been my concern about how involved the church gets in politics. Yes, we should do everything that we possibly can. We should vote. We should pray. We should do our best to try to find godly leaders. But let's not put a man, a politician, in the place of God's man or the captain of the Lord's army or whatever. Let's just trust God and his sovereignty and understand that no matter what unfolds, 
um, God is in control and we can have put our faith in him and we don't have to freak out about what's going on around us, okay? Okay, Chris is telling me it's been 45 minutes. Um, that's good. Um, everybody's still good. I'm, I think I've got maybe, maybe five to eight minutes here. Everybody's still good? Give us a thumbs up. Or have you guys logged off? You already fell asleep. Um, all right. So that's, this is why I made the argument that this is why I said your current political and cultural circumstances should not cause you to abandon biblical doctrine for speculation. That you and your generation is seeing the fulfillment, but rather you wait for confirmation, absolute proof, and fulfillment. Okay? Anybody still out there? All right, good. All right. Uh, just think about how the change in their circumstances shifted their doctrinal beliefs regarding the millennium and the end time prophecy. So just think through this logically for me. In the face of such joyous circumstances, so they were elated that they were having church in catacombs, in tombs, right, to hide from the authorities. And now all of a sudden the circumstances completely change. So in light of those who needed hope for a millennium in the indefinite future, it was easy to come to the conclusion that the millennium had already arrived. It was here. This is it. This is the thousand-year reign. And that Christ's second coming would occur at some date after the millennium was complete. And this was a post-millennial view. Now, Jerome, who is responsible for writing the um, most of the Bible in the Latin Vulgate, okay, he actually complained about this. Listen to what he says. Quote, one who was yesterday uh, a catechumen is today a bishop, meaning he was in the catacombs preaching, and today he's like, has status in this empirical church. Another moves overnight from the amphitheater to the church. A man who spent the evening in the circus stands next morning at the altar, and another who was recently a patron of the stage is now the dedicator of virgins. I have no clue what that's talking about. Um, <laughs> he wrote that our walls glitter with gold, and gold gleams upon our ceilings and the capitals of our pillars, yet... Christ is dying at our doors in the person of his poor, naked, and hungry. So with now non-existent persecution of the church and newfound comforts of the open arms of the empire and the empirical church, the focus of the church changed from looking for the ultimate comfort in the presence of the Lord at his coming to seeking comfort in this world in the here and now and believing that because the empire had embraced the church that this was the millennium. Do you understand? That's why millennialism took root. That's why post-millennialism took root at that time. And it took root to such a degree that it held in captivity the, the church until the Reformation, uh, Reformation. But even then, the reformers did not go far enough. Again, they reformed all the doctrines of grace and, and ecclesiology, the doctrines of the church, but they stopped short of reforming the doctrines of eschatology. Uh, historian Paul Johnson's book, History of Christianity, he writes, Christianity was viewed as a religion with a glorious past as well as an unlimited future, and as a result, it suffered what Johnson called a receding, indeed disappearing eschatology, he stated. 
after Christianity, contrary to all expectation, triumphed in the Roman Empire and was embraced by the Caesars themselves, the millennial reign, instead of being anxiously awaited and prayed for, began to be dated either from the first appearance of Christ or from the conversion of Constantine and the downfall of paganism, and to be regarded as realized in the glory of the dominant imperial state church, okay? Instead of being aliens and strangers in this world, Christians found themselves utterly at ease in the city of man as well as the city of God. Now, this is really interesting because most heresies and most false beliefs are old. They're not new, okay? These things, as, as uh, you know, the writer of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, wrote uh, that there's nothing new under the sun. In Augustine's City of God, it was a fir the first comprehensive theology to result from this viewpoint of eschatology. And Augustine believed that the history runs on two parallel tracks, the city of God, which are God's people, and the city of man, which are human endeavors as typified by human government, which we've talked all about that, all right? Um, but the way he broke it down, I believe, was, was incorrect and harmful. He taught that the people of the city of God must support and uphold the ordered piece of human government, the city of man, all right, so this is this is interesting because I wrote this down. Did it did it influence the modern kingdom now theology, the seven mountains of influence? That it's our job to infiltrate the seats of government and create this new kingdom, right, through our own power and our own good works, and not on the presence of the Lord. And Augustine's amillennialism view follows this general theme. He reinterpreted the millennium to refer to the church and equated the thousand-year reign of Christ as his saints with the whole duration of this world. So he said the millennium, the millennium was actually all of human history. So Revelation 20 then, which we started with, would be interpreted as follows uh, using that, using that um, lens, okay, that, that amillennial lens. Number one, Jesus bound Satan and restrained him from seducing the nations at Calvary. So their belief is that at the cross, when Christ died, that Satan was bound and no longer has any power. Okay? Number two, the saints currently reign with Christ in the millennial kingdom of God, which presently exists. Welcome to the kingdom. We're This is it. Yay. All right. Um... <laughs> Uh, number three, Satan will be loosed for a three and a half year period of time during which the church will be severely persecuted, okay? And then after this, Christ will return. So that's how amillennialism breaks down in their eschatology and what they believe about the millennium, that it's allegorical, that we're in it right now, that Satan and all his minions are actually bound right now, okay? Okay. Augustine stated that the literal view of the scope of the millennium 1,000-year reign would not be objectionable if the nature of the millennial kingdom was a spiritual one rather than a physical one. So basically, um, they strongly opposed the idea that the millennial reign was going to be a physical. And, and you would actually be anathema. You would actually be accursed by the empirical church if you believed in the literal thousand-year reign of Christ. And he strongly objected to the view uh, of this being physical, okay? And that's what this quote is about here. Um, Augustinian's amillennialism was the dominant eschatology for centuries. Premillennialism 
with few exceptions, soon became the view only of outcasts and heretics, and the paradigm shift within the body of Christ was complete. Uh, the marginalization of the premillennialism of the Bible, that theology, and the early church fathers was so successful that even the reformers dismissed it as, quote, a fable of Jewish dotage. And it was not until the mid-19th century that premillennialism was rediscovered as the true biblical view. So we are forever reforming. We are forever uh, 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 returning to sound biblical doctrine um, as we continue to strip away the things that were taught during this empirical church period, okay? In the latter years, 3rd century and beyond, one was a premillennialist only if Plato's allegorizing was explicitly rejected. The trajectory of the church went from premillennialist literal exegesis of Scripture to amillennialist allegorizing and spiritualizing of the text. The de-premillennialization, man, I'm making it hard on myself when I write these words. I'm not even sure that that word exists, but you understand what I'm trying to say there. Basically, the removing pre-millennial views from the church followed a broader general trend, which is the de-judification of the church, meaning uh, anti-Semitism, unfortunately, was promoted within the church, and many, many Christians, uh, professed Christians, were um, anti-Semites and hated the Jews, okay? Uh, Jerusalem ceased to have Jewish bishops after 135 CE, and likewise ceased to be the mother church of all churches. And all of a sudden, Rome became the center of Christianity. Before that, it was Jerusalem, and it was all headed by Jewish bishops. But then after that, it began, it began to be ran by um, the Gentiles and the Roman church. Okay, The quarter dosimen controversy, the date of Easter, whether or not it should be celebrated. So you wonder about our holidays and why we celebrate them on certain days. That was all that empirical church that was all switched from uh, the Jewish celebration periods to Roman Catholic celebration periods, okay? Um, and it should be celebrated according to the Hebrew calendar on the 14th of Nisan or on the Roman calendar correlating with the sun, and eventually the church decided to do it their own way. Late 2nd century three through 325 CE, so it showed how Gentile believers consciously neglected the Jewish traditions established by the Jewish apostles. So do you understand what I'm trying to say here? Is as uh, Roman Catholicism continued to grow and, and, and grow its roots, then they purposefully stepped away from the Jewish traditions and turned their attention rather to Rome. They didn't want uh, Israel and Jerusalem to be the focus of the church and prophecies anymore. They wanted Rome to be the focus of the church and prophecies. And so that's why all of this stuff changed. So to summarize, and I'm about to close, <coughs> excuse me, the New Testament teaches us to expect a literal fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets when Christ returns, including their vision of a geopolitical an actual political government and spiritual restoration of the nation of Israel. The earliest church fathers expected literal fulfillments of the Old Testament prophets when Christ returns. 
The earliest church fathers were premillennialists, and especially those closest to the author of Revelation, who is John the Apostle. Uh, allegory as a general hermeneutic should be discarded, therefore disqualifying all millennialist readings of the Old Testament prophets and Revelation 20. The most credible and historically supported eschatological position is the premillennialism that results from a literal hermeneutic of the scripture. Um, so I'm kind of curious how many of you guys knew there were historical links to premillennial views of the early church fathers. Did anybody know that? Did you know that there were all of the this history of premillennial views and uh, dispensational views, or had you heard that these things were taught, uh, or that they were come up, they came up with them just in the last few hundred years? And how many of you knew that this was the position of the majority of the early church? How many of you thought that the historical church rejected the premillennialist views and that it was this new trend in a modern uh, church age? Okay, um, those are questions just food for thought. Okay, and it's actually that amillennialism is the fad and it became popular in the 4th and 5th centuries and of course the damage was done. Amillennialism's ugly cousin, preterism, is a fad as well, but with a much darker origin story, okay? Meaning it was born out of uh, what I mentioned before, this anti-Jewish, um, anti-Semite hatred of the Jews, okay? Um, what lessons can we learn from early church fathers? That they were imperfect, not divinely inspired, as was the apostles, okay? We need to separate the two. But the circumstances they were dealing with caused interpretive errors, okay? That's why I say we do not uh, we do not interpret scriptures or speculate on scriptures based upon our modern day circumstances. We see the table is being set. We see that the chessboard is being set up. But we do not claim something is a fulfillment until we know for a fact that it's a fulfillment, okay? Um, so... Um, in a time when Jews and Christians were engaged in a tug-of-war over which religion would emerge supreme and victorious, it was easy for church leaders to get carried away and adopt a theology that the church replaced Israel. It was also easy for Justin Martyr to spiritualize the Old Testament in order to see more of a New Testament Christianity in it for the purpose of uh, refuting the Gnostics who denied the Old Testament's place in God's revelation to man, all right? Um, anyway, I guess, guys, I'm not I'm not actually sure. I'm almost done here, so, so just hang with, with me for two more minutes, okay? Um, the lesson we have to learn is that we should continually guard against interpreting the Bible according to our current events, as I just said, um, and, and this is a point that should be heeded by some dispensational uh, millennialists proponents, okay? The bottom line, of course, meaning that don't turn locusts into Apache helicopters and and his wound into being, uh, you know, a sniper shooting the Antichrist in the head, that sort of thing. Let's just teach what the Bible says and leave the speculation, like, to speculating and for fun and interesting conversation rather than saying, no, this is how it's going to happen, okay? The bottom line, of course, is that we must continually go back to the scriptures for our only source for truth, as well as how we form our eschatology 
and we should abandon cleverly devised tales, as uh, Paul mentions. As much as we may respect and admire the early church fathers, or for that matter the reformers, the Puritans, or even a particular modern-day spiritual leader or pastor, we must always remember to be Bereans, checking the conclusions that they're teaching and reasoning against the plumb line of God's word. It is God's word that is the truth. They, the Bereans checked the Apostle Paul. They searched the scriptures to make sure that what he was saying was true. And that's what I want us to be as a church, Bereans, okay? No one could put it more clearly or forcefully than Martin Luther as he boldly and defiantly proclaimed before the Diet of Worms, unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. Here I stand, and I cannot do otherwise. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word, and thank you for the foresight of these historians who who wrote down what they believed during the time, Lord, so that we could trace back the history of the church, even all the way back to the first apostles, Lord. And I just pray that as we study these things, that we realize that, you know, we can have disagreements and differences of belief when it comes to eschatological views, Lord, and that it should never be a cause for disunity. But Lord, that we would truly look at Scripture uh, in a way that we seek to honor you and and what it actually says, Lord, and never uh, approach Scripture with our own agenda or with our own uh, eyes, but Lord, rather we would look at Scripture through the revelatory eyes of the Holy Spirit and that we would be enlightened by that. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Okay, some of you guys may have to go, but I'm just kind of curious um, if you have any questions. Does anybody have any questions that you would like to bring up? Um, and if I can't answer it right this second, then I will certainly make an effort to do so um, later on. But does anybody have any questions? Catherine Plumley said, I feel like we should get a college credit for this class, but I so love it. <laughs> Good. I'm glad. I, I'm glad. Thank you for saying that. Uh, Vicki's mind is blown when she's wearing glasses, so she just <laughs> puts what, the emojis she put. Your mind is blown. Uh, what specifically, does anybody have anything specifically today that you feel like you learned that you didn't know before? Great sermon. Thank you, Michael. Scripture is always our truth, Catherine Plumley says. Great message. Learned a lot, Sherry Burns says. Good. Well, you guys, I, I've studied through this. As I said, I dove into this because I do believe that we, we can know what the Bible says about eschatology. We can know. And, and it's such cause for such uh, disruption and lack of unity in the body oftentimes. And I find that to be really tragic. And so the best way to overcome that as a, a local church family is to dive into scripture and do your due diligence and learning what the Bible actually says. And in this case, you know, for the first time ever, I went extra biblical in looking at the historical texts and what those early church apostles believed. So um, to me, it was very exciting and I geeked out. So um I, I realize I'm a, I'm a Bible geek, so I apologize um, if, if I've been so uh, 
<laughs> if I've been blowing your face off a lot lately, but we are in the coming weeks very soon going to get on track now that we've got a foundation laid um, in eschatology and what the Bible teaches. We know where we are, and now we can begin to look at what's happening in the world around us uh, in relation to what we believe about eschatology. So we can be prepared and pray and recognize uh, what our calling is in these uh, end times, okay? So did anybody have a question? Anybody? Nobody? All right. Hey, we love you guys, and uh, we're praying for all of you. Um, I think you should just do a vote on whether or not you want to get together tonight or if you want to postpone it until next week. That's totally up to you, okay? Um, Wait, Vicki says, so we are on the 6th. I don't know what it's called. <laughs> the 6th? And the 7th millennia. Oh, mill millennium. Yeah, so... Um, so if, if we are to take scripture literally, um, and there are some things I could show you that, it, that are truly mind blowing when it comes to reflections of things that happened in each millennium, each thousand years, uh, going back to creation that corresponds with things that happened on each day of creation. And perhaps that's something we can cover maybe at one of our Bible studies um, over at the Lillards. Uh, I, I just I want to give you guys what you want to hear. Um, I don't want to beat a, a horse to death if uh, or beat a dead horse. What's that saying? <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to beat a ho horse to death and then keep beating it after the fact. Okay, um, but basically, yes, we are we are currently in. If you're if you're taking scripture literally. Um, and you count genealogies and you go back, then yes, we are right at the end of the sixth millennial period, which would be the end of the sixth day, which means the seventh day would be the day of rest, which is the thousand-year reign of Christ, which means if you're going by that, we are knocking on the door of the rapture and the return of Christ. That's what that means. Yeah, All right. Okay, y'all, feel free to post any more questions if you have them. Or actually, if you want to, you know, if you go back through some of these messages and you see um, that there are things that you want answers to, if I can help in any way, I, I, I will try. But let's have a question answer time where you guys pose your questions and uh, I will do my best to answer them, okay, in that time. So just write down your questions, start you a note on your phone. And just keep tabs of your questions, and uh, we'll have a great time get together and, and talk through many of these questions. All right, you guys, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do the outro. We love you. We hope uh, you have a wonderful week. Keep us in prayer. We will remember all of um, the folks who are uh, dealing with illness and all of that right now and lift them up. So you guys do the same. We'll talk to you later. Thank you so much for joining us today. We hope you are encouraged by the truth of God's Word. If you're in the Tulsa area and are looking for a local church family that teaches God's Word, then join us at 1030 every Sunday morning. Or you can join us live online on our Facebook page or YouTube channel. Until next time, brothers and sisters, as Paul instructed, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you.